Welcome to Jonathan on Money, the personal finance podcast that brings you the latest insights and strategies to help you achieve your financial goals. I'm your host, Jonathan I. Shankman. On this podcast, we'll cover everything from investing, financial planning, retirement, and behavioral finance. I'll share advice and practical tips to help you make the most of your money. So whether you're just starting out or looking to take your finances to the next level, Jonathan on Money is here to help. Let's dive into this week's show. Welcome to this week's episode. This week, we're going in focus where we explore more advanced wealth planning topics. Today, we'll discuss taxation of cryptocurrency, NFTs, and decentralized finance. By way of background, the launch of Bitcoin in early 2009 seemed to adopt, seemed at the time like a blip on the world's radar screen. For those who weren't early adopters of the digital medium of exchange, the concept was hard to understand and even harder to use. Today, the world of blockchain technology has evolved to include cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, Ether, non-fungible tokens, decentralized finance, decentralized autonomous organizations, or DAOs, and the various metaverses in corners of the internet, large and small. What is often overlooked in the excitement of all these new concepts is their tax treatment. Today's show will just focus on resolved and unresolved tax aspects of these Web3 concepts. Today, we're privileged here for Matthew Rappaport, who's Vice Managing Partner at Falcon Rappaport and Berkman, based on Long Island, New York. Matthew chairs the first the firm's taxation and private client groups, where he focuses practice on taxation as it relates to real estate, closely held businesses, private equity funds, and trusts and estates. He advises clients regarding tax planning, structuring, and compliance for commercial real estate projects, all stages of the business life cycle, generational wealth transfer, family business succession, and executive compensation. He also collaborates with other attorneys, accountants, and financial advisors, bankers, and insurance professionals when they encounter matters requiring a threshold level of tax law expertise. Today, Matthew will be speaking on taxation of cryptocurrency, NFTs, and decentralized finance. And with that introduction, I'll now turn the program over to Matt. Yoni, thank you as always. Uh, In addition to Yoni introducing himself and his illustrious background, Yoni is also now officially, officially our family's financial advisors. So if you guys are ever wondering like, hey, is Yoni good at this actually? Like I could tell you, yes, he's actually good at this. Which I, it's the most ringing endorsement I can give of his services anyway. And of course, this is the periodic gathering of tax professionals who are better than me at this. So I'm always honored when uh, Yoni invites me to speak to everybody because as I look at the attendee list, it is a bunch of people who are better tax professionals than me. And then there's some people I don't know who I'm sure are also better tax professionals than me. I'm also going to shut off my video because my face is hideous and nobody wants to see it. So I'm just going to use my voice. So we have like 27 minutes and like 89 slides. I tried to put in the description for Yoni also, uh, which he disseminated to everybody, that I am not going to talk about the background of what crypto and NFTs and DeFi actually are, because that, when I do the presentation, takes up 45 minutes and we don't have that kind of time today. So we're going to do some turbo mode overview of like, hey, how does this stuff work from a tax point of view, right? So obvious disclaimer, not legal or tax advice today. Please don't rely on any of this. And also further disclaimer, crypto is insane. The crypto winter that has occurred over the last approximately nine to 12 months is probably proof positive that this is not for the faint of heart. This is me. If you want to read about me, you can get the slides. But 
generally right. DeFi is built on, on the blockchain. For those of you who don't know what the blockchain is, it's a little illustration on the bottom right-hand side. It's just an electronic ledger. But the electronic ledger is kept by a bunch of computers that are hooked up to the internet called nodes. These computers are all around the world. At this point, you need a supercomputer to do this for most major blockchains, Bitcoin, Ethereum, all that stuff. But blockchain is really the foundation of all of it. Uh, that's why it's at the bottom of this pyramid. So the blockchain is just a way of keeping track of stuff. You can keep track of lots of stuff on the blockchain, not just stuff based on the internet. Theoretically, you can keep track of stuff on the blockchain that corresponds to real life. That's why some people are proposing the idea that the blockchain be used for things like title to real estate, because the blockchain is just a system of keeping track of stuff. It's, it's recording transactions. But the difference is it's decentralized. So all these different nodes that are hooked up to the internet keep track of the blockchain, and all of the nodes have to check each other's work. So that's why people like the blockchain, because there's no centralized authority like a bank or a government. But that has its disadvantages, which I can explain if I had more time, but I don't. In general, this illustration talks about the idea that the blockchain is also encrypted. So these hashes are, are, are basically encrypted data. And the nodes or the computers that are on the blockchain are constantly trying to unscramble the encrypted data in order to populate the blockchain. But at this point, every block in a major blockchain, like the Bitcoin blockchain, has the data for multiple Bitcoin transactions on it. One of the drawbacks of the blockchain, especially for when you get to the scale of Bitcoin, is that stuff gets processed slowly and expensively, especially when you compare it to like credit card companies and stuff. Now, cryptocurrency, right, is, you know, I was explaining how you can keep track of stuff on the blockchain. Cryptocurrency is just keeping track of virtual cash on the blockchain. Bitcoin's the most popular. So this Bitcoin white paper was like, look, when we started Bitcoin, we being, by the way, I don't even know if it was one person or a group of persons or whatever, because this person, Satoshi Nakamoto, who's listed at the bottom as the, as the pseudonymous creator of Bitcoin, like, Satoshi Nakamoto doesn't really exist. It's a pseudonym for somebody or, or some persons, and we don't even know who they are. But what Bitcoin was meant to do was like in the wake of the financial crisis, notice this was 2008, uh, Satoshi basically said, hey, what if we just had decentralized virtual cash that would be tracked on the blockchain? And it's meant to be like a trustless system, right? Based on the fact that it's decentralized and thousands of computers hooked up to the internet are checking each other's work. Theoretically, you ought to be able to rely on it without having to have a, a cop enforcing it, like the government or something like that. But you know, inevitably, that's kind of sort of not the way it works out. Um, and one example of that is smart contracts. I uh, derisively call these things dumb contracts because what smart contracts are is they are computer programs that automatically run stuff if you give them certain inputs, right? So for instance, I mean, the Super Bowl just happened, right? So if I wanted to use a smart contract to bet on the Super Bowl, I would have a smart contract with Yoni and I would say, hey, Yoni, um, you and I are going to link up these smart contracts to our uh, Bitcoin wallets, and I'll bet one Bitcoin that the Eagles are going to win, and then you bet one Bitcoin that the Chiefs are going to win. And then if the Eagles win, then you know the smart contract automatically takes Bitcoin from one wallet to another. And if the Chiefs win, then the, the, the Bitcoin will be automatically taken from the other wallet back to, to the one who bet on, on the winner. And smart contracts are like inflexible. It's, it's just if then, 
right? So if you say, if the Chiefs win, take one Bitcoin from Matt's wallet and give it to Yoni's wallet. And you could do the reverse if the Eagles win, right? Whatever. But the thing is, smart contracts are totally inflexible. So at the end of the day, if you end up with a snag or a problem or the smart contract is malicious or you actually wanted more conditions in there, it's it's not really like editable. It's just you have like a computer program that's just on autopilot, like it's click were. So and smart contracts, I derisively call them dumb contracts, right? Now, the Bitcoin blockchain can accommodate smart contracts. The Ethereum blockchain can. So Vitalik Buterin, that is not a pseudonym. Vitalik Buterin is a real person. He's Ukrainian. And he uh, put forth the Ethereum blockchain in 2013. He's got a white paper and he's like, yo, the Bitcoin blockchain doesn't let you have smart contracts on it. But Ethereum blockchain that we just invented does let you use smart contracts as part of the blockchain. So the difference here is that on the Ethereum blockchain, you can actually write smart contracts into it, which is pretty cool. So, right, you've got the blockchain underpins this whole system and what it allows you to do is it allows you to track ownership of stuff and the smart contracts actually allow you to transact and stuff. So you can transact in two types of tokens generally if you wanna use the blockchain on like internet stuff, AKA what I like to call magic internet money. You have fungible tokens and non-fungible tokens. Fungible tokens are like virtual cash. Bitcoin, but there's also like, I put physical cash here just to give you like the really upfront example. You got gold bullion, you got dollars and euros and rupees and all sorts of stuff. And, and these are fungible because there is no difference between one Bitcoin and another or one uh, Ethereum, uh, one Ether and another. But the thing is, there is no such thing as physical Bitcoin or physical Ether. Like these are just like media images in the middle. Like they, they, these things don't actually exist. Like there was a scam going around with physical Bitcoin. Like do not pay attention to this. This is, Bitcoin is notional. It, it exists only on the internet. Like that's it. Non-fungible tokens on the other hand are unique. So NFTs, again, they're not, a lot of people get these things confused. NFTs are not the actual pictures or files and stuff. They are certificates of ownership tracked on the blockchain. So, you know, these are these are examples, by the way, uh, these are all owned by my uh, my partner, Moish Peltz, who heads up our emerging technology practice. On the left, you have a board ape. Board apes are very famous. In the center, you have a Fidenza. Fidenzas are cool. On the right, you have a CryptoPunk. You know, all these things in internet circles are relatively famous, but the ownership of these things are tracked on the blockchain. And that's pretty cool, especially when you think about the use of the blockchain, like in real life, like tracking art. Like, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the Netflix documentary Made You Look, but that was all about the provenance of art, where, where there was actually art that was being invented by a scam artist being passed off as Rothko's and Pollock's and stuff like that. The blockchain is designed for that stuff not to happen, right? So you enter now the world of decentralized finance. Decentralized finance is basically the idea of using smart contracts to do financial transactions with fungible and non-fungible tokens. And that has led to a super interesting world in which it's like kind of sort of not being regulated. It's just starting to be regulated. And there are fights between the CFTC and the SEC over who regulates it and how. But the other regulator involved in this is the IRS. Now, the IRS first really put guidance out there on cryptocurrency, mainly Bitcoin, in 2014. The IRS said, like, look, number one, all right, like, when you mine Bitcoin, what does that mean? You hook a node, meaning a supercomputer, up to the blockchain, and the mining is the reward for what you get as part of helping to populate the blockchain. 
And there's, there's really, right, there's two methods of doing that. There's proof of work. When you guys hear in the news that um, Bitcoin uses like more energy worldwide than most countries, that's because of the proof of work. Proof of work, basically, you have to solve a cryptographic puzzle to populate the blockchain. And the cryptography being used to populate the blockchain is so complicated that it takes like insane amounts of computing power to, to figure out the cryptographic puzzle. So proof of work is super energy intensive. And um, this is, you know, they, they call it mining because it is random as to whether you're going to get a reward for populating the blockchain. It's the first to solve the puzzle. The first computer to solve the puzzle on the blockchain is the one to get the reward. So the uncertain reward, the heavy work, they call it mining, right? Proof of stake, on the other hand, says, well, that's what, you know, Ethereum, the Ethereum blockchain used to be proof of work. Then they switched it to proof of stake. Proof of stake says, take your ether and, and put it up literally as collateral. And if you do something malicious on the blockchain, like invent the transaction, or if your computer makes a mistake for some reason, we're going to take your collateral away from you. And your chances of being rewarded with populating the blockchain are proportionate to how much collateral you've put up. That is not energy intensive. And that is why uh, if the Ethereum blockchain ultimately switched over. So in, in notice 2014-21, the IRS said, well, mining off the proof of work on the left-hand side here, that is taxable income. And cryptocurrency is also uh, treated as property. So the key thing here is that cryptocurrency is not actually treated as United States currency or any of its equivalents. It is treated as property, meaning all of your cryptocurrency has a basis that you must have, you must track. And any disposition of cryptocurrency is a section 1001 sailor exchange. Yeah, that, that, right? So this is already like super unwieldy. And there's software out there that helps you track this stuff, but it's not that good. It could use a lot of improvements. So you already have compliance problems off the bat based on the IRS's position that this stuff is property and it needs to be tracked with its own basis and all of the dispositions need to be recorded as section 1001 sales or exchanges. Now, as far as staking, right? Staking, again, looking on the right-hand side, this proof of stake where you put up your stuff as collateral, when you get a reward, right, for populating the blockchain, there is some wild positions out there being uh, espoused by some really reputable practitioners in which they say, actually, staking is not taxable income. I totally do not agree with that, by the way. I believe that all staking rewards are taxable income. But this Jared taxpayer took it to the Middle District of Tennessee and basically said in so many words, my rewards for staking HES, which is the currency the Tezos blockchain are actually not taxable and the Jarrett sued for a refund in the middle district of Tennessee. Notice the venue, by the way, the reason why they went to the middle district of Tennessee is because I think they and their lawyers thought that they could put one over on a non-tax judge. And basically what happened was the IRS turned around and said, yo, we're not litigating this in Tennessee. We're actually just going to give you the refund you're seeking. And a lot of people thought that the IRS is refunding the Jarrett's was actually a concession that staking rewards are not taxable income. That is not true, okay? That the IRS refund was an indicative of nothing except for the idea that they did not want to litigate this in the Middle District of Tennessee. They would have rather litigated it in tax court. And when this does get litigated, that is indeed where you will see it. And I believe the tax court will say that this is Section 61 gross income. 
Um, the 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 staking argument, the staking taxpayers argument was revenue ruling 79-24, the section 61 regulations were self-created property is not income. Like for instance, if you're a fisher person, you're, you're a person who goes out fishing for a living and you, you catch fish, the catch is not taxed when it occurs. The catch is taxed when it's sold, right? But that analogy does not hold. If you guys want my article on that, you can email me, by the way, I have my email at the end of the deck. And like, I just don't think that, I don't think that actually holds. So the IRS gave the refunds the Middle District of Tennessee mooted the case, and that's it, right? So the IRS uh, next released Revenue Ruling 2019-24, in which it said, "Listen, if you're, you know, there are so many virtual currencies proliferating at that point that the IRS said, if you want to be subject to our 2014 notice on virtual currency, then you have to meet these four requirements. Um, otherwise, you cannot." lean on the virtual currency guidance that we gave in 2014 you have to rely on regular tax guidance and that really applied to like nfts and stuff otherwise you know if it was a virtual currency then you you could rely on the 2014 guidance and these four that you see in the middle of the screen here were the criteria they used um if you go to coinmarketcap.com for instance you can see listings for like hundreds and hundreds of cryptocurrencies but like there's there's only like 20 of them that are actually worth anything the other thing they did in 2019-24 was they said what would happen if you had what was known as a hard fork. So some of these blockchains actually split off and, and there are offshoot cryptocurrencies from the main one, like Bitcoin has Bitcoin Cash and, and, and Ethereum has you know Ether and Ether Classic and all this other stuff. But when a hard fork happens, they have what's known as an airdrop, which means that the wallets that own the cryptocurrency also get new stuff. And they said in 2019-24, a hard fork, the airdrop from a hard fork is a taxable event under Section 61. So if you get airdrop new cryptocurrency because you happen to own some old cryptocurrency, that is Section 61 taxable income. And all of that, by the way, makes sense. Like this, this interpretation, I completely agree with. Um, I got some examples here to talk about some of the tax issues that do come up in here, right? So you got, okay. So the first thing you got to do in getting into the digital asset world is you got to on-ramp it, right? So the reason why cryptocurrency exchanges exist is because if you have dollars and you want cryptocurrency, like you have to go get it from somewhere. Well, where you get it from is you get it from cryptocurrency exchanges. So the first thing we illustrate here is you got like purchasing $1,000 of Ether from some cryptocurrency exchange, right? That'll get you a $1,000 basis. There's some, you know, you, you look here on the left-hand side, you got a fee. Here we, we looked at Coinbase, right? So Coinbase charged a $38 fee to buy $1,000 of cryptocurrency, right? So by the way, it's a great racket. That's uh, why Coinbase is a publicly traded company if you want in on that racket. But, um, you know, you really got $961.63 worth of Ether. But like, ultimately, what you do with the fees, I think, depends on how you hold it. I got some slides in here on like dealer versus investor versus personal use. And the fees are deductible or capitalizable into basis, depending on how you use the cryptocurrency when you buy it. But like, when you buy it, the cryptocurrency has its own basis, right? We talked about the revenue, the, the notice in 2014, which said cryptocurrency is property. So it's got its own basis, right? Now, what happens when you move it around between wallets, right? So the way you own cryptocurrencies, you don't really like, you can own it in your own name on Coinbase, but you can also own it anonymously. And if you look at that little 
picture on the right hand side below account one it's got this like series of letters and numbers there is a dot 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 in there but that long series of letters and numbers is your wallet so when the blockchain tracks your transactions it's going to track them based on your wallet address not based on your name so a lot of people like the anonymity of it and they have wallets that are used off the internet that's a cold wallet right any wallet not connected to the internet a wallet hosted on a place like coinbase is a hot wallet it's connected to the internet right and all these different cryptocurrency exchanges that went bankrupt, by the way, all those wallets were hot wallets. So when you transfer from one wallet to another, that is not a Section 1001 sale or exchange. But the IRS has acknowledged that. So when you, it's an internal transfer, transferring to yourself, like that's not a Section 1001 sale or exchange. There's no other party. But when you swap cryptocurrency for cryptocurrency, here we have Ether being swapped for Matic. Matic's on the Polygon blockchain, right? Ether for, for Matic is a, section 1001 sailor exchange so this is acknowledged as a and 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 when you talk to people that are non-tax professionals they do not get this like they just turn around it's just like what are you talking about if we're swapping one cryptocurrency for another that that's a, a recognition event it's like yeah buddy that's a recognition event it's section 1001 right less obvious is what they call wrapping okay so like let's just go ahead and say like i have my tokens on one blockchain and i want them to be on another blockchain right so my colleague robert Kantowitz is on here right robert's got his own practice but he also is is really really helpful to us and he does some of counsel work with us and like robert knows financial products really well right so like in in robert's brain it's probably like turning around and be like wait a second if i own ether on one blockchain and then i go to a custodian through a smart contract and i get what they call wrapped ether right what is that is that a seller exchange is that a derivative if i go if i do it through a liquidity pool is that a section 771 contribution to a partnership is that a section 1058 loan what is that we don't know. I wrote an article, again, same article, you can email me if you want a PDF of it, in which I take the position that this is actually a seller exchange um, under present law. I do believe the best policy decision is to make this a non-recognition transaction. But for those of you who are familiar with wrapping tokens, I think wrapping tokens under present law is a seller exchange. That's a controversial point of view. Liquidity pools, right? We talk about the, the notion of decentralized finance. Decentralized finance is like financial transactions that you would see in the real world being done with magic internet money. So here what you have is a liquidity pool is a decentralized market maker. So what you have is you have this like in this example, you got like a, a liquidity pool with one hundred and four million dollars in it. Right. Of, of cryptocurrency, lots of cryptocurrency. So if I wanted to do a cryptocurrency swap and I didn't want to use a centralized exchange because I wanted to stay anonymous and I didn't want to give my information to Coinbase or I didn't want to risk FTX going bankrupt or something, then what I would do is I'd go to one of these liquidity pools and I'd put like Ether in it and I'd get Matic out of it, right? That is to me, the liquidity pool is a partnership and this is a disguised sales, section 707 transaction. That's the way I see it, right? But in terms of how to report this, nobody knows, right? So a lot of these liquidity pools, by the way, do not report for a Form 1065. They don't, they don't file a Form 1065. They don't give anybody a 1099. They don't do anything. That may change based on recent legislation, which I do have slides on in here, where they talk about like broker reporting and middleman reporting. But nobody's doing this right, okay? And I put some arguments, counter arguments in here that you can read and stuff. 
Uh, you know, and, and the other thing that they have on decentralized finance platforms, besides the market making and the exchanging of cryptocurrency, they also have lending. This is what got uh, uh, FTX in trouble. This is what got Three Arrows Capital in trouble. And this is what got Voyager in trouble, Celsius in trouble, is they did all this lending. So when you look at these earn programs that they write about in the, in the uh, mainstream media, this is really people just lending out to each other. It, it was very bank-like. Like everybody who understands banking, uh, traditional savings and loans and stuff, right? It's the, the banks are giving out loans and then they're taking deposits and they're giving interest on the deposits and the spread is where the bank really makes its money in the savings and loan model. Now that got a lot more complicated, the re repeal of Glass-Steagall and whatever, right? But decentralized finance is just people doing that through decentralized means. So you may notice a pattern here that decentralized finance is doing the same stuff as centralized finance, but also finding the same problems that regular finance went through in the early part of the 1800s, the late part of the 1800s, the early part of the 1900s, when regulation first really came into being. All that stuff is happening all over again in decentralized finance, right? And again, you look at what they're saying about DeFi lending and, and other sorts of stuff and the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, they changed the tax law to have mandatory 1099 reporting for a lot of people who are in DeFi protocols and, and people who lend out, people who serve as middle persons in transactions on, on decentralized finance networks. It goes in effect in January of 2024, but you're already seeing it for a lot of the major players because it went in effect for them earlier, right? So like all this stuff that's going on with like, and they, they delayed a lot of it, the IRS, because they realized for like the $600 limit for a lot of these different transactions, it's it, it happened on regular transactions that occur in, in US dollars on PayPal and, and Venmo and stuff. And it also occurs for decentralized finance. It just goes to effect a little bit later, but like, the government's starting to get wise to this and doing mandatory reporting like it does for the rest of the world. Um, so wrapping in cottage savings, you can read all about this in terms of what the argument is on, on my end, but I think wrapping tokens is a taxable event. NFTs similarly are also property. So when you purchase an NFT, it's got its own basis. When you dispose of it, it is also, um, um, it, it's also a disposition event under section 1001. You have to tabulate tax consequences. Um, unopened packs of like, there's virtual cards now. So NBA top shot is virtual basketball cards. When you open a pack, do you get income? My position is, I don't think you do. I think if you have a super valuable card, when you open it from a pack, I think that it has a low basis and you have a recognition event when you sell it, but that is not settled. The IRS has no guidance on it. Um, airdrops. Most airdrops, the IRS has commented on this. I did put the revenue ruling in the CCA that, for reference. Airdrops in general, when you get stuff and the stuff has worth, it is um, it is Section 61 gross income. That's pretty obvious when it comes to cryptocurrency, especially when it's listed uh, for spot prices on exchanges. But for airdrops of NFTs, it's a lot less clear. And I think the right policy for this, even though it's not like explicitly the law, is that when you get airdropped an NFT with uncertain market value, it should get a zero basis and you should be taxed on it when it's sold. But theoretically, I think the law as it stands right now is that you have to find a value for the NFT and then you have to tax it under Section 61 when you get airdropped the NFT. But at the end of the day, no guidance there, which kind of um, sucks.
Trading NFTs is a pretty obvious Section 1001 sailor event, uh, sailor exchange. So let's go into losses for a second because the last two minutes, this will be valuable for people that have clients like Crypto Winter, like, oh my God, what are we going to do here? Sailor exchange. There are tax loss harvesting things because the now instead of, you know, I talked about the IRS getting wise to the digital asset community. The digital asset community is now getting wise to the tax law. So the IRS came out and said, even if you have like a cryptocurrency or an NFT that's worth like 0.000001 pennies, you can't take a worthlessness deduction under 165. You actually have to have an affirmative sale exchange or abandonment. So there are there's tax loss harvesting services where they give you burn wallets and you can send your your worthless crypto and NFTs to burn wallets and you can that'll be a seller exchange. Um, wash sales. Really brief comment on wash sales. The general consensus in the tax community is that cryptocurrency and NFTs are not subject to the wash sale rules under Section 1091. I think that's a risk personally. I don't like advising clients you can do that. But the consensus among the tax bar is that you can do that. In terms of worthlessness, I talked about the availability of the deduction, but CCA that just came out last month, CCA said, listen, virtually worthless is not the same as worthless. You either have to abandon it or you have to sell or exchange it in order to take a loss just because it's worthless doesn't just because it's virtually worthless and it's worth a fraction of a penny doesn't mean it's completely worthless. That's an extreme position. The other extreme position that they took was on donations, which I'll try to finish up with. But the one thing I want to comment on, right? First of all, there's abandonment. You can send a virtual currency or, or NFTs to a burn wallet and try to abandon it and get, you can try and sort of get like try and claim like a capital capital loss potentially ordinary loss like but these are uncertain positions and the irs did comment on them in that cca that came out last month but the other thing people have asked about is theft okay 2009-09 for those of you who have been practicing long enough you'll recognize this is the madoff revenue ruling can you claim a theft loss. Now, granted, keep in mind for the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, they limited theft losses. So not only do you have to keep in mind whether or not the theft loss is available, you also have to take into account new legislation over the limitations on theft losses, which is important. But nevertheless, if you had money in FTX, if you had money on the Terra Luna, Voyager, Celsius, these places that declared bankruptcy, can you take a theft loss? Maybe because you don't require a criminal conviction. I saw a story in Bloomberg yesterday where there was an accountant who mentioned you need a criminal conviction for a theft loss. That is not true, okay? If you look at the 165 jurisprudence, it is not true that you need a conviction. So maybe you can do it, but you really have to heavily look into it. And finally, charitable contributions. This was an extreme position. Cryptocurrency, fungible tokens, in this chief counsel advice, the IRS said you need a qualified appraisal. Now, I wrote an article that I don't know if it appeared in tax notes yet, but I wrote an article with my colleague, Michelle Cable, that's lined up to appear in tax notes where I was like, how do you get a qualified appraisal for cryptocurrency? And by the way, they have spot prices on public exchanges. So like, I don't really understand at the end of the day, like why they're saying that greater than $5,000 donations of cryptocurrency require qualified appraisals, because I don't even think you can get a qualified appraisal because it requires a certain amount of experience in, in appraising cryptocurrency. And nobody really has that yet. So, and plus cryptocurrency has spot prices on major exchanges. So I think that's, I don't, I don't like that position, 
but that was the IRS's position. So for any of you guys doing form 8283 for crypto donations, you guys need a qualified appraisal all the same, which in my mind, that's an extreme position. The other slides I have are on the different reporting and compliance stuff that the IRS has come out with. So the slides are jam packed full of information, but I think I did a half decent job, hopefully, of going through a lot of material in a short period of time. If you guys ever want to come to us for help with any of this, uh, here's my email. So send me an email anytime you like. You want to ask questions and stuff. But I hope this was informative for everybody. Yoni, thanks again for having me. And uh, till next time, unless uh, Yoni hears people throwing tomatoes and then says I can't come back. Thank you, Matthew, for that informative talk on taxation of cryptocurrency, NFTs, and decentralized finance. A big takeaway for me was that while these areas of the market are fairly new and exciting for investors, don't let all the excitement distract you from the important tax planning and relevant tax treatment to be mindful of. Anytime you make an investment or own an asset, hiring professionals with the proper experience and expertise in the area you are investing in is imperative to ensure that you're following the rules, which seem to be evolving as we speak. This program should have given you some important knowledge on the subject, but at the end of the day, it's always important to include your trusted advisors as well. And with that, it's a wrap for this week's show. Any comments or questions, feel free to reach out directly to me via email. I love hearing from my listeners. And finally, at the end of every episode, I like to share that the secret to financial success is no secret at all. It's to spend less than you make, invest the difference prudently, and ignore all the noise. See you next time on Shankman on Money. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. I hope you were able to take away a nugget or two to apply to your own life. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you can be alerted whenever new episodes drop. If you'd like to submit a question that may be answered in a future show, please email me at jonathan at parkbridgewealth.com. Be sure to check out all Jonathan on Money content, including all my articles, webinars, and videos by following me at Jonathan on Money on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Finally, if you like what you heard today, please rate the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps ensure that other personal finance enthusiasts can find the show as well. Thank you and catch you on the next episode of Jonathan on Money.